to, to turn back with me to the book of 1 Samuel, that we are working our way through this book um, written thousands of years ago, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. And this book um, should encourage us as we look at God's work in real lives, real people, real encounters with the God of Israel. Now, if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, um, you'll remember what's happening in the the story so far, uh, that we uh, remember that Israel was sinfully demanding a king, uh, that they wanted a king like all of the other nations around them. But then, at the same time, uh, after they demanded a king, they didn't know where to find one, and God sent Samuel, who anointed Saul, privately first, and then he anointed him publicly. But there was still this great question at the end of chapter 10 uh, that we looked at last week. So if you, if you look there in your Bible, um, in verse 27, it says that some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. That that's the great question here. How can this man, Saul, save us? Can he deliver the people? So I'll begin reading it. First Samuel um, chapter 11, verse 1. Um, and, and if the sound could be turned down just a little bit, I think it's a little bit boomy, I believe. Um, it might be slightly more comfortable if we, if we bring the sound down just, just a little bit, either mine or the master. Perfect. Thank you. So again, this is first. Samuel chapter 11, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Nahash the Amorite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Amorite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Samuel said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was kindled. And he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. Then they mustered at Bezek, and the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. 
And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no one of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the man that we may put him to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. There Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice greatly that we have your word, that we have your comfort, we have your encouragement. So, Father, we pray that you would again give your spirit to understand, to see what you have for us in your word. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, perhaps some of you are familiar with the the book, The the Lord of the Rings, and the, the movie adaptation of that book. And you may remember in the the final of the the movies, The Return of the King, when Minas Tirith, the great city of Gondor, the white city, is surrounded by an army of orcs, uh, these terrible monsters from Mordor. And it's an overwhelming force that they're facing, uh, that they know they can't hold out for long. And so they make a last-ditch effort to call for aid, that they, they light a beacon over the city, and then there's a series of beacons that are, written, are lit throughout the mountains, and it carries the message all the way to Rohan, on the other side of the mountain pass, calling for aid. And you remember the part in the movie where Aragorn looks up and sees the beacon lit on the top of the mountain. He rushes into the, the court of the king of Rohan, and says that Gondor calls for our aid. And then there's that dramatic pause, and and the king says to to muster the Rohirrim, and they ride out to deliver the city. But it's several days' journey, so it looks like everything is lost. It looks like the the battle is going to be uh, lost as the evil hordes come into the city. And at just the right moment, the the riders of the Rohirrim, this great cavalry force, is on the mountain, they ride down and bring victory against the forces of evil. And you can think of a story like that from the mind of Tolkien and from fiction. But here in this text, we see a very similar story to that, but it's real history. Uh, It's reality of events that that happened where there is an, an evil king who is going to take this poor, helpless city They make a a final push to try to get help, and then the Lord provides 
And as we walk through this text today, though, we're going to see that just as Saul rescued Israel from this evil king, so Christ rescues us from all the powers of evil. So again, look in your Bible at, at verse 1. And we're gonna, today we're going to actually walk through our text verse by verse, looking at the, the victory of Christ for us. So look at, at verse 1 again in your Bible. It says, Then Nahash the Amorite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. Now remember, the, the people of Ammon were actually relatives of the people of Israel. They were descended from Lot, the nephew of Abraham, through his incestuous child with one of his daughters. And so the Bible has a lot of exciting things in it. You can go back and read about that in, in Genesis chapter 19. But then as Israel came into the promised land through the, the hand of Moses and then Joshua, that Ammon opposed Israel in their position to the east of the Jordan, uh, in the, the, the area that is now modern-day Jordan. And so, apparently, this great king of the Ammonites, Nahash, uh, was subjugating city after city in the world around him. There are actually other extra-biblical sources that tell us that, that Nahash would, was going from city to city, putting out the right eyes of everyone as he took them. And so the, the men of Jabesh-Gilead, this Israelite city, decide to be proactive. And, and so they, they reach out and they say, we will surrender, we will give ourselves up to you, on, uh, if you will only spare us, we'll pay tribute, we'll be your subjects. Whatever you do, don't kill us. But as we think about what they're facing here in our text, and I think that there is an analogy to another conflict that we have in the Christian life. That yes, Nahash is a real historical king, but there is an, an analogy to the Christian life, and our struggle against sin. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. As you hear from the Apostle Paul that there is a spiritual war within each believer, that there is a spiritual siege in the heart of every person, sin waging war against us. And that's why we're commanded in Scripture so often to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight, to, to take up the whole armor of God against the, the forces of evil that are even at work in our own hearts. But then I think that we can be a lot like Israel in this text, that we can go to our enemy sin, and we can say that we prefer comfort, that we don't want to face the battle. And so we can ask for some sort of treaty or alliance with sin in our lives. 
that we say, I will serve you up to a certain point. I will pay tribute to you as long as you leave me with ease and comfort and, and peace in daily life. But then we see that, that sin is a lot like King Nahash of the Ammonites. Because sin always demands more from us. Because look at what the king does in verse 2. Look there in your Bible. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So what would you do? (laughs) You're faced with this condition. On the one hand, you try to hold out in a siege, and you face starvation and eventually death at the hand of the sword. Or you make a treaty with your enemy, and he comes and gouges out your right eye. What would you choose? And this was actually a a common practice in ancient warfare, that when you wanted to subjugate a people, uh, you would dig out their right eye um, because they could still farm, they could still pay tribute, but then they couldn't have depth perception to fight in an army. They couldn't fight with a shield that most often you would hold your sword in your right hand, your shield in your left hand, and if you didn't have a right eye, you had to look all the way around your shield in order to strike at the enemy, which would put you in a very bad situation. And so by gouging out the right eye of everyone in the city, it would essentially eliminate any chance of rebellion while still receiving tribute from an agricultural society. So it seemed like a a good plan on the surface. But then again, we think about this analogy, applying this to our, our battle against sin. And we're reminded of what Jesus says about the battle against sin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. That Jesus tells us to take very severe measures against sin. And there are examples in church history of people who tried to take those words very literally. I think that that Jesus is using hyperbole to show the seriousness of sin. But he's saying that, that it would be better to lose your right eye than to fall into temptation. And the reason for that is that sin is a lot like the king of the Ammonites, that that sin can make promises to us. It it promises happiness. It promises fulfillment. It promises joy. But then sin always takes more than it promises, that if you try to make a treaty with the power of sin in your life, uh, you don't even know what it will take at this point. But it says in Scripture that the wages of sin is death, that eventually it destroys you. It brings utter destruction to you. And so you can think of people who say, think that they can casually use pornography, but then they become enslaved to pornography and destroys their life or their marriage. 
Or you think about people who believe they can casually abuse alcohol, but then it eventually destroys their life and their relationships. Or we think that we can idolize work or idolize pleasure or idolize self or live in pride. And we think that it'll turn out fine, that we can make a treaty with sin, but it will always take our right eye spiritually. And then if it remains, it'll take far more. And that's why the the famous John Owen, the great Puritan preacher, said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And so as we turn back to our text in verse 3, we see that Israel recognizes the cost of surrender. They, they say, we, we can't surrender and lose our eyes. And so look at what they say in verse 3. The, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers throughout all the territory of Israel. Then, if there was no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. Now, on the surface, this seems like a a bad deal for Nahash. Why would he agree to let them have seven days to send messengers throughout Israel to try to get help? But then, as as a calculating evil king, that he thinks this will bring more shame on Israel, that if they send messengers throughout the land and none of their kinsmen come to their aid, that it'll show that the disunity of Israel, it'll show the weakness of Israel, and so he grants their request. They, they send messengers out, come to our aid against Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. But as we think about our analogy to the battle against sin, uh, we can draw another lesson here. That as they abandon all hope in themselves, they begin to search for a leader. They search for someone who can save them from the hand of their enemies. And this is often the first step in the Christian life, that the first step in the Christian life is actually an abandonment of hope. That in a sense, we could, we could put on our sign, abandon all hope. <laughs> a hope Presbyterian and abandon all hope Presbyterian. Because in a sense, we are both hope Presbyterian church and abandon all hope Presbyterian Church. And let me explain what I mean, is that that the first step of the Christian life is to abandon all hope in ourselves, to recognize that we can't fight the battles of the Christian life by our own strength or our own wisdom. And when we abandon all hope in ourselves, then like the, the people in Jabesh Gilead, We begin to look around us. Is there a Savior? Is there someone to deliver us from all of our enemies? And sometimes we begin to look in the wrong places. We say, well, maybe mindfulness can save me, or maybe education, or clinical counseling, or Eastern mysticism, or art, or hard work, or politics, that that we look for some Savior to deliver us from our condition. 
It's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans. Who can deliver me from this body of death? But then as we turn back to our text, look at how Israel found a Savior in verse 4. It says, When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And so you see the, the condition here. Uh, they, they travel to Gibeah in the tribe of Benjamin. And this is where Saul was from. And they perhaps knew that this newly anointed king of Israel was in this city. But Israel was still not unified. They weren't following one king. They, there still wasn't one central authority to lead everyone out into battle. And you see Saul's lack of authority because they report it to the people of the town before they report it to him. But then he, he comes in from the fields, and he's out plowing in the field. And you say, well, that's strange that he's, he's been anointed as king privately. He's been anointed as king publicly. Why is the, the king of Israel out plowing the field? And a few commentators say that this is a sign of humility, that he was willing to serve his people. But considering the, the future path of Saul, I think that either he was still refusing to accept his leadership role in Israel, as he had been doing all along, or he didn't have enough popular support and trust of the people to be able to, to have kingly duties to fulfill. And so he may as well go out and plow the field. But as he comes in, he hears the crying of the people. He asks them what's happening. They tell him about the, this threat against Jabesh Gilead. And as you can read in Judges 19 and 20, the, the people of Gibeah were actually related to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, and so the people of Gibeah were, felt this, this sense of kinship, and they were distraught. And so look at what happens then as he hears this report in verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. And so just as the, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul uh, when he was prophesying in chapter 10, the, the Spirit of God rushes upon him again, and it leads him to decisive action, that he is no longer hiding in the baggage, as we saw last week, but he is ready to go out to war, to, to muster an army. And you can see how he, he begins to muster this, this army in verse 7 in your Bible. Look there. He says that he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Now, this was a very charged action of Saul. 
Uh, because you may remember back in the, the book of Judges, chapter 19, in this same town, the town of Gibeah, that a young woman was assaulted and murdered by ruffians in the town. And her common-law husband, in one of the more gruesome acts in the Old Testament, carved her up and sent her body parts throughout the land of Israel, calling them out to war against the people of Gibeah in a great civil war. And from the perspective of Saul here, that was one of the last times that all Israel gathered together in a one unified force to fight, that it was a, a civil war against this very town, against the town of Saul. And so he echoes that historic event, uh, but he cuts up this, these oxen, and he sends the parts throughout Israel, and he softens it slightly that in Judges 19 and 20, it was a threat. If, if you don't come out and fight against your own people, this is what we will do to you. But here it's a threat against the, the animals of the people, that if you don't come and fight with Saul, he will do this to all of your animals as well. That this is, in a sense, the, the horse head in the bed kind of threat against the people, that this is saying a, a veiled threat. Come and fight or you are in deep trouble. So it's a, it gets subtle message getting across what, what Saul is seeking. And you'll see what it, what it says in, in the text, that the dread of the Lord, the dread of Yahweh fell upon the people, and they came out as one man, pulling them together. And then verse 8, look there in your Bible. It says that when Saul mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. Now, sometimes people will, will doubt the, the numbers that we see recorded in the Bible. This is a, a side note, that this is a massive number of people that are listed here, 300,000. Now, even many Bible-believing scholars think that the word for 1,000 could be a smaller military unit, maybe not a precise mathematical number. But either way, we get the sense that this is a, a massive army that is coming up to fight for their kinsmen in Jabesh-Gilead. So then look at verse 19 as we continue through our text, or sorry, verse 9 as we continue through our text, that they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. And when the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. And I, I listened to an Alistair Begg sermon on this text, and, and he got a real kick out of that last word. They were glad. <laughs> Just the, the understatement of, of Scripture. Not that they jumped up and down or they were overjoyed, but they were glad that they were getting deliverance. And then they began to, to sow disinformation among the people. Therefore, the, the men of Jabesh said, reaching out to the Ammonites, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. So at this point, the Ammonites think that they have success, that no one is coming to their aid. But then you'll see as the text continues that, that Saul comes with his army, uh, that they engage the enemy forces early in the morning, and they win a decisive victory, routing 
their enemies, delivering the city. And Saul is firmly established in his kingship. Let's look at verse 12. It says, Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. So they want to unify all their leadership around Saul. But then look at what Saul says in verse 13. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. So now we see the the dramatic story, one that could be in a a fantasy novel, that it's, it's that exciting. But then we pull it again to our application that we've been talking about, our decisive battle against sin. That we, we talked about the danger of surrendering to sin, that it'll take more than we expect. We, we talked about the, the call to abandon all hope in ourselves, to search for a Savior. But then here, as Israel finds Saul, at first we think that maybe Saul is the Savior who will deliver the people. But then we begin to discover that no, Saul is not the Savior, that the, the ultimate Savior behind the the veil in this text is the Lord himself, that it was the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord rushing on Saul that gave him the bravery and the wisdom to to win the battle. And at this point in his life, Saul is still able to give God the glory because he says the reason we shouldn't exact vengeance on the people who oppose my leadership, verse 13, is that the Lord has worked salvation in Israel, that salvation is completely of the Lord from beginning to end. And this is true in the Christian life as well, that when we face the, the power of sin and death that is wor- in, at work within us, that it's not by human might or human power that we shall gain the victory in the end. And you can think of Zechariah chapter 4, Verse 6, that says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That if we want any victory over patterns of sin in our life, that it's going to come as we abandon hope in ourselves, and not as we look to hope in any other person, but we look to the spirit of God. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 13, That if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. And this is where we begin to see that that Saul, the king, is pointing to the, the greater king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Saul had this temporary rushing of the Spirit upon him for one particular task in his life, but then he ended up moving into unfaithfulness later. But you can think of King Jesus, who had the Spirit above all measure, that that, that he walked by the Spirit throughout his life, and that ultimately we gain victory as we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, that the Spirit of Christ is at work in our hearts, in our lives, in our minds to set us free from the the power of sin and death 
that is at work within us. It is a spiritual work of God's Spirit coming upon us and the power of Jesus to set us free. And then as we're set free, that we're, we can rejoice in our salvation. And I'll just, as we wrap up, call you to the final sentence in this chapter. It says, There they sacrifice peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. There's this great joy of the people, and they have a celebration together of the victory that they have. And you'll notice that one of the aspects of their celebration, of their great salvation, was that they offered sacrifices. And you remember that sacrifices in the Old Testament were a sacrament of Israel, pointing forward to Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. But for us here today, we recognize that sacrifices, like we see in our texts, have been abolished. They've been done away with. That instead of the sacrament of animal sacrifice, we have the, the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And just as they feasted together and re- rejoiced together, responding to the salvation that they had experienced, so we, ex- we enjoy this feast together, this sacrament pointing to the completed work of Jesus on the cross that, that shows us the work of the Spirit and giving us victory over the power of sin in our lives. Now, if you're here and you've never repented and trusted in Christ, that we're, we're glad that you're here, but we would encourage you to, to wait, to not take this. That the Bible says that if you take this without believing in Jesus, that we can actually eat and drink judgment on ourselves. But for the rest, you don't have to be a member of Hope Church or a member of a Presbyterian church, but to be one who is trusting in Christ, who's made that public by being part of a church that proclaims the gospel, uh, looking to Jesus, abandoning all hope in yourself as you put your hope completely and utterly in Jesus, the one who can save us from all of our enemies. And so then ultimately we come to this meal as those that can profess the faith that we hold together, uh, using here the words of, of John Calvin. These words come from the, the preface of a French Bible in the 16th century, and it's a beautiful statement of the victory that we have through Christ over our enemy sin, death, and the devil. So let's read this together. Without the gospel, everything is useless and vain. Without the gospel, we are not Christians, but by the knowledge of the gospel, we are made children of God, brothers of Jesus Christ, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, heirs of God with Jesus Christ, by whom the poor are made rich, the weak strong, the fools wise, the sinners justified, the desolate comforted, the doubting sure, and the slaves free. It is the power of God for our salvation for all who believe. It follows that every good thing we could think or to be desired is to be found in the same Jesus Christ alone. For he was sold to buy us back, captive to deliver us, condemned to absolve us, 
he was made a curse for our blessing, a sin offering for our righteousness, marred that we may be made fair. He died for our life. Because on the night that our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given things, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So you can come down the center aisle, um, come whenever you're ready. Um, Steve and, and I will be um, over here um, holding the, the cup and the bread. I can break off a piece of bread and give it to you. If you need gluten-free or just prepackaged, this is here. And if mobility is an issue, um, Ernie will be taking this tray around so you can raise your hand, and he is happy to, to bring uh, that to you. But let's pray together as we come. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the greater Saul who is faithful to the end, um, the greater Saul who uh, has the, the spirit above measure is truly God and truly man. Um, Holy Trinity, we thank you that you are one God, Father, Son, and Holy, Holy Spirit, the, the author of all the, the life and salvation and hope that we have. Lord, we acknowledge today that, that there is salvation in no other name. Uh, that as we abandon hope in ourselves, uh, facing the, the patterns of sin in our life, we, we pray that it, we wouldn't look for salvation in any, anything man-made, anything less than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we thank you that, that He rides out with the army of mercy, victorious over His enemies, and Lord, we thank you for this meal of celebration, that just as Israel in ancient times had sacrifices to celebrate their victory over an earthly enemy, Lord, we thank you that we can celebrate this sacrament, um, knowing that we have victory through Christ, that the, the enemy is already subdued, the powers of sin, death, and the devil, that we don't have to live in fear, that we can live in, in comfort and hope and life, and we thank you for that hope, and we thank you for the Spirit who ministers to us in a unique way as Christ is spiritually present among us as we take this meal. And so, Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.